talking all things wound care. This is The Pressure Effect, brought to you by Smith & Nephew. Welcome to The Pressure Effect from Smith & Nephew. I'm your host, Dr. David Zobel. One of the best ways to understand the ramifications of pressure injury, both in a clinical and legal sense, is to examine a relevant case study. Starting with today's episode, we are kicking off a four-part series within the podcast that examines a fictional pressure injury case from beginning to end. By looking at each part of the process, we hope to present a holistic representation of potential real-life outcomes that can be used to expand your understanding of pressure injury cases. This is part one of avoidable or unavoidable, the unstageable pressure injury of Mr. Y. Our guest today is Dr. Lee Rutzi, Medical Director at the Saratoga Hospital Center for Wound Healing and Hyperbaric Medicine in Saratoga Springs, New York. Dr. Rutzi and I will lay out the case for you and focus in on the standard of unavoidability. When exactly are hospital-acquired pressure injuries unavoidable? Welcome, Dr. Rutzi. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Happy to be here. To start off, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background in medicine and about your experience with hospital-acquired pressure injuries? Sure. My original training back in the 80s, family medicine and emergency medicine, and spent 15 or 20 years then after residency working both private practice and as an ER doc. In uh, about 2001, I became interested in wound care and gradually transitioned into that full-time and have been doing so now for 13 or 14 years. I've had an interesting sort of unintended twist in my career. About five years ago, I was nominated for a position on the board of directors of the National Pressure Injury Advisory Panel, the NPIAP. And when I say unintended, it's just been a remarkably positive experience, both in terms of my own education and in terms of my understanding of pressure injury. So it's become a little more of a special interest for me in the last few years. So it's fair to say that 100% of your practice is taking care of wound care patients. 100%. That's fantastic. And you also have the ability to see patients in the hospital and not just the clinic. Is that correct? That's correct. So today we're going to be setting up the fictional case study of Mr. Y, which is the case of a hospital-acquired pressure injury. Our focus in this episode will be setting up some of the key facts, and in later episodes, we'll be further discussing the fictional case in more detail. So let's dive into the case of Mr. Y and set up this case study. Dr. Rutzi, can you tell me about the patient details? How old is Mr. Y? Sure. He is 43 years old. And what is the rest of his medical background we should know about? Well, he is a paraplegic since his teens, secondary to a motor vehicle accident, and has been cared for at home by his family, mostly wheelchair-bound, certainly non-ambulatory. Medical comorbidities are relatively unremarkable. He's on some muscle relaxers for the spinal cord-associated muscle spasms and things like that, but but really nothing, no diabetes, no heart disease, no lung disease, no hepatorenal disease. Pretty healthy guy otherwise. 
But now that he's a 43-year-old, we can say that there has never been a history of presser injury in his paraplegic life. That is correct. He has never, up until this episode, had a pressure injury. So what was it that brought the patient into the hospital as a 43-year-old? He developed pneumonia, non-COVID pneumonia, but nonetheless, a pretty nasty pneumonia and ended up with ventilator-dependent respiratory failure, uh, was intubated and uh, ventilated in the ICU for about five days before he was able to be transferred down to the floor, extubated and transferred down to the floor. So how did it come about that this patient ended up with a pressure injury? As it turns out, he was in the ICU. He was on an alternating pressure low air loss mattress, but unfortunately was labeled as, quote, too sick to turn, close quotes. Therefore, he was essentially on his back, either in a, a semi-fowler's position or ahead of bed at uh, 30 degrees with his legs out flat for that period of five days without any significant turning or repositioning, and he was not, was not allowed out of bed. So it's fair to say that this episode of sepsis led him to some cardiovascular compromise where his cardiovascular system and blood pressure is maintained in this rather supine position. Maintained in the relatively supine position, he had a very brief time, less than a day in the ICU when he was on uh, vasopressors, but those were able to be weaned off. And actually, his mean arterial pressure stayed in the 70s and 80s for the rest of his time in the ICU as measured by uh, arterial line. You mentioned that at least during the time in the intensive care unit, that he was on a alternating pressure low air loss surface. Were there any other preventative measures that were used? Not that I was able to find. And he was in an outside institution, so I can't be positive that I got all of the records. But from what I was able to see, other than the uh, low air loss mattress and a, uh, a single layer pad underneath him, I didn't see any evidence of pillows or uh, anything else for positioning. When you reviewed the patient's record by the 10th day of hospitalization, was there any documentation of what the pressure injury looked like at that point? Or was that the first time it was documented? Sadly, there was not. And the patient and his family were, in fact, not really aware of this. His sacrococcygeal area was insensate due to his spinal injury, so he couldn't feel what was going on down there. They informed him that he had a bed sore when he left the hospital, but that was the first they knew of it. Dr. Ritzi, the sacral pressure injury was identified on day 10. Were there any treatment plans that were initiated for this patient on day 12? Sure. When he was transferred to the uh, medical floor from the ICU, he went from a alternating pressure low air loss mattress to a high, spec high specificity foam mattress. However, protective foam was placed over the sacral area and uh, regular and frequent turning and repositioning was initiated on that date. And was there any treatment initiated for the patient as he left the hospital? Again, unfortunately, and quite remarkably, he was told by the staff that uh, this injury should heal on its own without any trouble, and they should call them, whatever that meant, they should call the hospital if he was having any troubles with it. So as a physician that practices wound care full-time and 
somebody that sits on a, a national board for pressure injury prevention, my suspicion is, is in your practice, patients seek you out for this kind of problem or whether they're referred to you for this kind of problem, but this is something you see all the time. Yeah, I, I you know, I don't see problems this bad all the time, but there isn't a day that goes by that we don't see a pressure injury of some sort. When you first saw the patient, is there any way you could share with us what it, the, the wound looked like? I sure can. Over the, from the midline of the sacrum across into the left buttock, there was a very large eschar measuring about 12 by 15 centimeters, a thick black eschar that was starting to separate around the edges. There weren't any immediate clinical signs of infection at that time, but I was able, again, owing to the fact that he was insensate in that area, I was able to debride that entire eschar, 12 by 15 centimeters, off of the base of the wound down to the subcutaneous fat. And again, no clinical evidence of infection. There was no visible or palpable bone at that point, and the peri-wound skin, other than being a little bit irritated, was relatively normal. So certainly as a 12-centimeter by 15-centimeter wound, this was a substantial problem that this patient was going to be facing. Substantial problem that he was going to be facing. Of course, you know, by staging guidelines, this was initially an unstageable pressure injury owing to that eschar, and then following debridement, we knew for sure that it was at least a stage three down to the sub-Q fat. So now that we've established the main details of this particular patient, let's talk about a little bit about the unavoidability standard. What is the unavoidability standard for you, Dr. Ruti? Well, basically it means if you did everything that you could have done and should have done, to prevent a pressure injury and it still develops, then you can say it was unavoidable. But drilling down to the actual document that uh, spells out unavoidability versus avoidability, in order to say that a pressure injury has been unavoidable, we have to do four things for sure. Number one, we need to create a patient-specific care plan based on individual risks, comorbidities, and individual patient factors. In that care plan, there needs to be set interventions that are going to be carried out. Number two, those interventions need to be implemented in a timely fashion. Number three, those interventions need to be monitored for their effectiveness or lack thereof. And number four, we need to alter our interventions based on how we're doing clinically. So again, as I said in the, the simplified version, that we really need to do everything that we should do and can do. And if in spite of that, the ulcer develops, then perhaps we can say that it was unavoidable. And in some situations where it is unavoidable, it's sometimes referred to as, as skin failure. Would you agree with that? Well, that's a little bit of a slippery slope at the present time in that we really don't have a definition of skin failure. Interestingly, the skin, of course, is the largest organ of the body. And we certainly know intuitively that as other organ systems fail, the skin 
can certainly fail as well. What we really don't have good parameters around are what are the factors that lead to skin failure. We know that it's more common in people with multiple comorbidities. It's more common in the intensive care unit when there's hemodynamic compromise and vasopressors and so on and so forth. That's interestingly one of the current topics of interest in the NPIAP and something that we're really trying to sort out because, you know, skin failure, unfortunately, it can be kind of a handy term. You know, somebody say, well, this was unavoidable because the skin failed, but we still don't really know what that means. So uh, hopefully in the next year or two, we'll, we'll, have some, we'll have some better definitions around that. I really appreciate that discussion and recognizing that there are still in this complex field some relatively slippery slopes, as you described, <laughs> that represent areas where we really just don't have definitions to even start to have this great conversation that you're having. With that in mind, is there anything we haven't touched on, any factors that kind of portray whether a wound is unavoidable or a pressure injury is unavoidable? Well, one other thing that I didn't point out in this case is that the patient was deemed, while in the ICU, the patient was deemed, quote, too sick to turn. However, there really weren't any documented reasons behind that. There was no substantiation of that statement. Like I said, his mean arterial pressures were in the 70s and 80s most of the time. And, you know, in terms of people that really aren't able to be turned and repositioned, they're the people with hemodynamic compromise where you start to roll them and their blood pressure drops and there's ways to deal with that. But sadly, this was a case of somebody saying he's too sick to turn, so don't turn him. But it does not appear that there were really any good reasons for that. So when hospital-acquired pressure injuries are unavoidable, there are some national guidelines, CMS, NPIAP, that maybe have some documentation about when this standard is not sufficient. First off, can you share with us what CMS and NPIAP are? First of all, you know, pressure stage three and four pressure injuries, according to CMS, are in that category of things called never events. They're not supposed to happen. So if a pressure injury occurs and develops while in a facility, whether it be a hospital or a skilled nursing facility, and it becomes a stage three or four pressure injury, then the hospital will not be reimbursed for the care of that pressure injury. And is the sufficient meeting for the standard different between CMS and NPIAP? Well, the NPIAP really isn't a regulatory agency. We don't make policy. We help to shape policy, but we don't make policy. So we are more an educational arm sort of are responsible for the research and education into the prevention and treatment of pressure injury. So one of the things that we are most focused on is how can we do a better job of preventing pressure injury? Because, of course, if we prevent one, then we don't have to treat it, right? Exactly. It certainly seems like some governing bodies that are setting some policy and establishing some, some policy are, are lucky to have you on their panel, Dr. Rotsi. Is there anything else you want to share with us about this case before we end up for today? I don't think so. Uh, he continues to progress very slowly, but um, certainly this guy and 
By now in my life, I'm calling people who are 43 young people. This, <laughs> this, this young man certainly has endured a great deal that in reality, he probably wouldn't have had to endure had the appropriate preventive measures been taken. Well, that's it for this episode of The Pressure Effect. I want to extend a big thanks to Dr. Lee Ritzi for joining us today to set up the case of Mr. Y and discuss the avoidability threshold for hospital-acquired pressure injuries. Tune in next episode as we continue our four-part series, Avoidable or Unavoidable? The Unstageable Pressure Injury of Mr. Y. Next episode, we'll talk about reasonable preventative measures that facilities should implement to prevent pressure injuries and more. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to leave us a rating or a review. I'm Dr. David Zabel. See you next time.